Welcome to Money Swish. My name is Ramsey. I am your host, and I am very excited to be joined here today with my guest, Patrick Leonard, Portfolio Manager with BMO Nesbitt Burns, one of the leading wealth management firms in Canada. With over 20 years of experience advising high net worth clients on their financial affairs, Patrick has seen his share of roller coasters play out in the market, the 1999.com bubble and the 2008 Great Recession included. Is the 60% stock, 40% bond portfolio, aka the 60-40 portfolio, dead? Is it a relic of the past? With interest rates and bond yields at record lows, much of the media and investors seem to think so, but we're going to be asking Patrick for his opinion on the matter. And if this is true, where should you be allocating your bond position in today's low interest rate environment? Money Swish is an informational podcast and should not be construed as professional advice. Any opinions expressed do not reflect the opinion of BMO Private Wealth. Please contact your financial representative for advice regarding your personal circumstances and financial position. Patrick Leonard, thanks for joining the podcast. Great to be here. Let's get right to it. There's big news coming out of Bloomberg the other day. Elon Musk has officially surpassed Bill Gates as the second wealthiest man in the world. Guess how much he's worth? $120 billion. $7 billion away, $127 billion. I forgot to take in the market action from yesterday. <laughs> well, speaking of market action from yesterday, get this. He's actually increased his fortune by $100 billion this year alone. Can you believe that? Well, he challenged Wall Street. And he delivered on his promise. And not too many people do that. I think all the good things that are happening to Mr. Elon, he's, he's, he rightfully deserves. He's second now only to Jeff Bezos. And number third on that list is Bill Gates. This is only the second time in the eight-year history of the Bloomberg Billionaires Index that Bill Gates has slipped below second place. But Patrick, one thing that really stands out is the top three wealthiest people in the world are guys behind three of the largest tech giants in the world right now. I mean, what do you, what do you think about that? Is tech seems like it's kind of taken over the world right now. Well, I've been hearing a lot of this phrase, creative destruction. Creative destruction. What is creative destruction? My definition of creative destruction is creating a new normal from the destruction of the old normal. And I would say in the case of, especially in the case of, uh, of Elon and Jeff, you'll notice I'm calling them by their first names, <laughs> um, is that they are, are creating new ways of transportation, new ways of shopping, packaging it mm -hmm. together in a way that the consumer finds is the best way for them to get the most value from their time and money. And, mm -hmm. and perhaps both of their themes are being accelerated by COVID. I think both entrepreneurs, uh, both, both inventors, both visionaries mm -hmm. had quite a bit of success pre-COVID and uh, COVID really just accelerated this, this creative destruction. With Elon, I can really appreciate the fact that he's not just taking an idea and expanding on it, but he is really creating and building something something new. Mm -hmm. And and you know, it's it obviously is having a, a huge impact on the markets. We live in a in a world of uh, copycat 
mm-hmm. and copycatting is going to be, I think, the way of the future. And so if this is technology making our lives easier, technology allowing us to expand our economy uh, from an investment perspective, we are starved for growth. So I applaud it. Now let's go back to COVID. You bring up a really good point. And I don't think it's a coincidence that in a year where his net worth has gone from 20 billion to north of 120 billion is also the year that we're in the midst of the COVID pandemic. You've been through the 1999.com bubble. You've been through the 2008 Great Recession. How does the disruption we're seeing in 2020 with COVID compare to what you've seen in the previous 20 years? It's a great question. And the most meaningful observation that I've had as a portfolio manager is how effective the tools that we have used in the past to manage volatility have proven to be very uh, ineffective in managing the same volatility in this market. Generally, we look at lower risk, lower volatility assets as a way to manage our our, uh, portfolios through times of of higher risk. With Mm -hmm. COVID, it was the exact opposite. The assets that allowed you to manage the the uncertainty of COVID were some of the perhaps the riskiest asset classes um, that we that we have known for the last 20 years, primarily uh, with regards to technology Mm-hmm. and life sciences and instruments like dividend paying stocks, bonds, um, you know, corporate bonds, uh, high quality bonds. These assets prove to be significantly less effective than they've been in the past. And from a portfolio manager perspective, this definitely is a learning point. And I think investors are taking notice. Investors are, are repositioning. I don't think anybody feels at all that we have seen the ninth inning of this story. Mm-hmm. If anything, we're perhaps just passed through halftime. And I'm, I'm very eager to see if, you know, how portfolio managers like myself navigate the back end of this storyline. Well, let's talk about fixed income for a moment. I know it's an exciting topic that's on everybody's mind. But in all seriousness, though, Patrick, you know, as well as I do, that it's a very important part of any investor's portfolio. And what we're seeing today, as you're aware, is an effectively zero yield on high quality bonds. So high grade Canadian government issued bonds, they're effectively yielding 0.68%. And it's not any better in the US where 10 year treasury yields are yielding 0.84% as of this very moment. So when we consider 2% inflation, I mean, yields are negative right now after inflation, and it's no different overseas in places like Japan and Europe where over half of the bonds being traded there, they have negative nominal yields. For people who are saving, for people who are investing for retirement or whatever their financial goal might be, I mean, is this arguably the hardest environment to invest in that we've seen in recent history? There's no safe yield anywhere. No, and COVID wasn't wasn't the only virus to come overseas, negative yields, negative yields. Going into COVID, we had over $4 trillion worth of negative yielding investment grade bonds trading in the global economy, none none of which were North American issue. Meaning pre-COVID, we were on an island with the fact that we had positive yielding, almost exclusively positive yielding investment grade bonds that we could build portfolios with. I've been telling my clients that the rest of the world has been looking at their investment grade bond, bond universe with a negative yield. And, and I go back to this. What did we think 
was going to happen. Of course, this had to land on our shores. Now, with that being said, I think with respect to fixed income, it's going to be a game of patience. And that's a hard thing for investors to do. What we've seen in the past, when we've seen uh, yields drop and perhaps yields flatten out, and perhaps we start to look at the yield curve pick up, is over that course of time, we see investors start to seek out higher yielding fixed income by going lower down by going lower down uh, with respect to credit. I believe that investors need to be patient here. I think when we when we think uh, of what our outcomes are going to be from 2020 from a portfolio perspective, mm-hmm. I think most investors are probably wiping their brow, sign of relief, uh, assets reinflated, bonds found the li- their liquidity trade, and we're going to come out of 2020 looking not so bad. Now, going into 2021, I think investors have to be prepared that for perhaps the first two to three quarters that they're going to see either no yield or continued negative yields on their bonds. But I believe that over the longer term, we're going to start to see yields pick up. Perhaps uh, investors are going to have to extend their term, extend their duration. Uh, but this is this is the beauty of the fixed income market is we have to remind ourselves that the bond market in terms of its total size is is comparable to the stock market, in many ways probably larger than the stock market. So vast amounts of, of liquidity and efficiency. And that's what's great about the world, uh, fixed income markets and equity markets. And I believe that we will have a trade opportunity with regards to fixed income, probably be in the corporate fixed income space, might be a little bit uh, lower within the brackets of investment grade. So it might be, you know, more in that double B, triple B space. But I, I do think that we, we still have a trade there. I think sovereigns remain stressed for a very long time. Clearly, there's been a trade on U.S. and Canadian 30 years yields at 1% or less for 30 years. That just the sheer size of those issues, which, you know, by the way, are fully subscribed, which meant that someone in that market felt that, that, you know, that was an efficient yield. I do think that those sovereigns are going to remain uh, negative for quite some time. But I do think that the market will eventually find that opportunity so that investors don't need to panic, but they do need to be patient. The one thing that I heard you say a few times, Patrick, which I completely agree with, is this essence of patience. And this is my way of kind of trying to make, I think, a safe topic a little bit more controversial because I agree on your points, but I want to bring up a study that Morgan Stanley recently put forward, a prediction. And this is why I really want to clarify the importance of this question. As a portfolio manager yourself who has the ability to custom build these portfolios out for your clients, you know very well that a balanced portfolio of stocks and bonds, as boring as it may sound, is one of the fundamentals and tested and true backbones of investing. But to your point, you know, after the pandemic hit, we've seen these doubts begin to grow about the approach. We've seen it in the media. We've seen it with analysts. We've seen it come from from many different directions. And a debate's kind of panned out here where people are looking at potential alternatives to bonds and they're questioning whether this conventional 60-40, where 60% of uh, conservative uh, or balanced investors' funds are in equity and 40% are in bonds. And that's 
kind of being brought into question right now. So Morgan Stanley, they recently predicted that investors, uh, to your point, Patrick, they're going to have lower yields going forward in the near future. And that investors are going to have to look elsewhere for that 40% of a portfolio that's traditionally been in bonds. But for the slack it's been getting, you know, the reality is it looks like it's still going to be a pretty solid year for the 60-40 portfolio. It's climbed 13% year to date, according to Bloomberg. So I guess my question to you is, do the numbers tell the full story is this still going to be a portfolio that has a place in your clients portfolios and in general do you see it having a place going forward well uh, you know another great question uh, going back as far as the financial crisis 2008 2009 uh, mentors of mine have have constantly expulsed the idea that investors are not taking enough risk especially while central banks have been very active have really shown their cards with respect to their willingness to expand their balance sheets at all costs to protect the economy, protect jobs, and keep business afloat. The reality is for the next four years, we are going to earn uh, next to nothing in terms of real returns on cash and fixed income. But I still believe that these asset classes are going to provide hedging features to volatility and a source of capital for income during retirement. I'm advising that my clients that after a strong, relatively strong 2020, that while they shouldn't expect anything out of the first six months of 2021, that later in the year, assuming that we see a organized dispensement of a vaccine, that we see uh, more controls put in place with respect to COVID and the healthcare system, is that the global economy is going to get back into a phase of growth. And over that period of time, I do think that, again, the opportunity within the fixed income space is going to is going to come back. I focus in again on this idea of patience. You know, perhaps perhaps the other maybe non microeconomic factor affecting the 60-40 portfolio is this idea of time horizon. I think that investors uh, still focus on this idea that their time horizon has to some way correlate with the date of retirement, the date their investments perhaps have to start paying them. And over the last uh, couple uh, weeks, I have kind of found myself going back over the storyline in around life expectancy. Uh, if we go back into the, the 1800s, I know this is a, a little bit of a reach, but if we go back into the 1800s, we had a life expectancy in North America that was around the age of 30. Back in the 80s, I can recall, uh, life expectancy was in around the age of 72. Now we look at uh, average life expectancy here in, in North America, we see age 85. I absolutely believe that one of the outcomes of the mass investment in pharmaceutical and healthcare stocks over the last nine months is there is going to become new science that is going to evolve from this study for a COVID vaccine and that investors should be prepared that average life expectancy especially for the wealthiest of countries, is in all likely going to expand another five to 10 years over the next decade or two. The fastest growing demographic in the world is people over the age of 100. I go back to the statement, are investors taking enough risk? And that's going to be a great question over, uh, over the future. That ties nicely to, there's this concept out there, uh, which has been popular in the wealth management industry and in financial, actually in, in financial advisory practices as a whole, which is this concept. I think it was brought forward by uh, a gentleman by the name of Jack Bogle. And he had this idea that's basically you should have roughly your age in bonds. And it's an idea that I'm sure many of the listeners of this podcast have heard before. So for example, if you're 30, you should have 30% of your portfolio in bonds. If you're 65, you should have 65% of your portfolio in bonds. But to your point, with life expectancy increasing, 
with Canadians needing their money to last them longer than ever before, is that an idea that needs to be tweaked? I don't know if you're a believer in that philosophy, but is that, an, uh, is that a philosophy that still stands true? I think this is a myth. Uh, one of the worst retirement planning rules of thumb to have ever found the light of day. I believe in investor DNA, meaning investors are either risk lovers or risk haters. Mm -hmm. And I have plenty of clients in their 70s or 80s that are reluctant to own any bonds in their portfolio. I believe that you can modify your investor DNA through experience and education, much like a weekend warrior athlete can by spending time in the gym <laughs> and pounding out uh, on the pavement the 5K runs. But the reality is some people love risk and there are others that will always be adverse to risk regardless of their investment advisor or how much CNBC they watch on TV. By staying true to your investment DNA, I believe you'll maximize your personal investment opportunity. I believe this is the primary role of the investment advisor, not the portfolio manager. Investment advisors should be trained to identify what a client's appetite for risk truly is, not what their stated risk is. Well said, Patrick. I think that's a great quote to end this podcast off on and a great note as well. So I want to thank you again for taking the time to share your thoughts and your opinions on a topic, again, that might not get as much attention in the media as other more kind of marketable ideas, but a very important topic nonetheless. And, and thanks for making it an interesting one. Thank you, Ramsey.